61 we've got an awesome guest today and a very i'll give you i'll give you a plug today bobby you've been a good co-host through 60 episodes so we've got a good co-host great guest who we got here today bob we got ryan spader uh of what i would consider twitter fame big twitter following the stats guy on baseball stats guy on twitter ryan how are you hey i'm doing great gentlemen i really appreciate you guys having me on just looking forward to talking some baseball yeah, so let's talk a little bit about how you. Uh, I mean, you you seem pretty wide ranging. So you obviously have two podcasts. Uh, I think Bob and I were both listening this past week. Um, you know, the the walk off, and uh, your other one is is the best baseball podcast that's still running. Yeah, so they were both um, the best baseball podcast I did with Holden Kushner two years ago. We actually uh, developed a pretty decent listening. We were over 10,000 listeners. And then unfortunately, we had a canket because he moved to um, Denver. We were both doing it out of um, Arlington, where him and I were close by. We were able to get together uh, once, twice a week and film an episode. And then um, we uh, we canked it last year and then brought it back under the name The Walk-Off with Blue Wire. Blue uh, Wire had um, picked us up for whatever reason. They thought our podcast was good stuff and they asked us to bring it back. So we did. That's cool. What is uh so? What is Blue Wire? As two guys who are are not sponsored, not picked up by anybody. Uh, what is what does Blue Wire do? How do they support your show? Like, what's their their media company like? Uh, so they are the producers. They, um, uh, I guess, what they do is they have a bunch of um, various sports, politics, uh, just different podcasts that they host and. Um, they, uh, I guess, in exchange for putting their name on your podcast, they um, they uh, write you a paycheck. So <laughs> that's the American dream. I mean, I think that's like the new American dream is grow up, have a podcast, get paid to do it, and then I don't know what's after that, Bob. What happens after that? I retire. That's where you peak, I guess. Yeah, that's where I'm. That's where I'm peaking. Well, and so but, go ahead, Bob. I was going to say, so we've got. A lot of wide-ranging topics, but first and foremost, baseball playoffs start today. Ryan, I saw you put out put an article, uh, right? What you thought your postseason picks, and like many people on Twitter, when I went to it, it crashed. So your your following bum rushed your website. But what do you what do you see for this 2020 postseason? The the craziness of quarantine baseball. So uh, the first thing that I will say is I kind of took the lazy way out because I, I, I don't know if it's like an arrogant thing of, of mine where I don't have to justify my picks. I just <laughs> straight up listed my picks. And then I felt really awful because I have uh, uh, somebody who was a friend of mine back when I was bartending. Um, her name's Meg Waldron, and she's been writing for me, and she's been doing a fantastic job. And then she went ahead and put this – together this extremely well thought out piece. She broke down every single matchup uh, all the way to the World Series and picking her World Series champion, which was the um, Cleveland Indians. Uh, the only one that she didn't give any analysis on was the um, game, uh, excuse me, the, uh, I guess, what are we calling it? The first round where the uh, Dodgers and the Brewers are playing each other. And her uh, analysis on that one was the Dodgers were 43 and 17. And that was it. I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> but for, for me, for me, she, you know, she kind of made me feel bad about myself because here, 
I'm supposed to be the host of this website, right? And I, I, all I did was put out my picks. And like you said, it, it did end up crashing my website. And I had to upgrade the, uh, the website. It cost me $528.10 so that I can um, uh, host more clicks at one time. I've only ever had that happen one other time uh, wow. with an article I had written called uh, Walter Johnson probably threw 88 miles an hour. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> gonna get back to that later <laughs> yeah but um so yeah I, ju- I just posted my picks and uh i mean I, my intention was to break them down on my show uh which i did a little bit i i went on a show in chicago recently i broke my picks down there as well but um i i kind of uh went in a different direction from what i believe this type of postseason structure will be in the future um, specifically, I had t- both sevens advancing. I had the Blue Jays over the Rays. Um, if you guys want, I'll get into the picks with you. But my my biggest thing with this postseason schedule, and uh, there's very few things that I'm going to take a stance on where uh, I, I try to act in humility. You know, it's how I was raised and everything. But I'm going to tell you right now, this postseason model is mine. I came up with it a year ago. <laughs> And Major League Baseball uh, poached it and used it of their own. I have a friend who's um, in the front office with uh, Atlanta, and he told me that this this stuff happens all the time. They poach from nobodies like me. Um, the seven inning doubleheader thing, for example, came from somebody just on Twitter, and, and the Manfred administration ran with it. But if you look wow. on. It's actually a year ago today, I wrote an article saying that uh, Major League Baseball should expand the postseason house. Here's how they, they should do it. And um, basically, word for word, that's what we're doing here. So I'm, I'm, I'm taking all the credit, whether it's mine nice. or not, I'm taking it. <laughs> well, congrats. So there's a lot of pushback on that. I mean, so I guess the common question is, why do we play so many dang games? Like, why do we play 162 games then just to let everybody in the playoffs? So how, how would you respond to that? So it's, it's funny you say that because a year ago I was dealing with this question. And um, first of all, the value of a number one seed this season is not quite there. It's not what it's going to be in the future. And that is a home field advantage for a number one seed, presumably a 100-plus win team over that of a number eight seed, presumably an 81 to 84 win team. Um, you're talking about a team – that is going to win this series, in, even the Rays case, a, a full house um, in a normal situation, they're going to win this series 83 to 90% of the time. That is what that home field advantage is. Now, that home field advantage, of course, is not here this year. Now, the one glaring difference between the Manfred model and my model is I called for reseeding based on record alone. Um, this year, what they're doing is their seeding based on finish in the division. I think that was the good, um, the best idea this time around because 67% of matchups came against division opponents versus less than 50 over the course of a regular, normal 162-game season. However, in the future, uh, when we use this model, and it's here to stay, but believe me, Major League Baseball will not reduce the number of playoff games. And if... Um, I'm wrong. I'll come back on the show and I'll eat crow. But they absolutely will not reduce the number of games. And in the future, they will shift 100% to what I'm going to call the Spader model. And they're going to recede based solely off the, um, the record. 
And uh, instead of seeing the White Sox as a number seven seed this year, I think they would have fallen in as a number three. And um, that's, I, I just really feel that's what we're going to see in the future. Uh, as for why do we play 162 games? Well, it's, it, the, again, the value of that number one seed is so huge. The value of the number two and the three and the four is so much greater than that of the five, six, seven, and eight. Um, I think the biggest thing, the biggest pushback that I received was, oh, it takes away from the value of the regular season. And I truthfully, I, I just, I don't see that. I don't see, I don't really hear that argument. Baseball is meant to be about this, um, uh, this grueling schedule, right? And we come to this thing, the postseason. And however many times have we seen um, a team like the Marlins, they twice won the World Series of a wildcard team. The team, uh, the Cardinals in Oh goodness, I'm forgetting the year that they went 83 and 79 and then r ran through the postseason. We've seen this happen before. And people want to complain because, oh, you know, a sub 500 team might make it here and there. Well, that's going to happen. And if they're a sub 500 team, they're probably facing a one. And then they're going to have to go through a grueling postseason schedule to even get to the World Series, let alone win it. And if you're a 79 and 83 team, and you beat a one and then you put hammer through the postseason and then you win the World Series. Well, damn it, you deserve to win the World Series. And just because over the course of that 162 games, you had, I don't know, five, six, seven games where you couldn't figure out who your closer was. And you had this guy and that guy and everybody and their mother in there blowing saves that would kept you out of the would have kept you out of the playoffs in a regular 162 game season. Well, if you figure it out at the end, the last, I don't know, it's called two months of the season, and then you can put it together and then you can put a run together in the postseason. I'm, I'm saying that that team deserves to win the World Series 100% because we look at that 162-game season and, and we say, well, why 162? Why not 100? Why not 80? Whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the fact is you, have, you look at the season in month spans, right? first month nobody's got it figured out you got maybe one team who's absolutely got the they're they, they, they are the team that they are going to be by the end of the season first half of the season really you, you've got teams figuring out they're still trying to put together their roster they're playing with different lineups second half of the season um, after teams making trades they're decided whether or not they're going to contend what they want to do uh, going forward here. Well, what I think we're doing with this postseason model is we have a number of teams who are going to be competing for that eight, seven, six, maybe even five slot, right? And a team like going back to last year when I proposed this model, a team like the Diamondbacks who are completely out of it with six weeks left in the season, well, they're now in it. And that's going to keep their fans in it. And that's going to keep their fans from shifting from the Arizona Diamondbacks to the Arizona Cardinals. And I think that's what baseball's goal here should be, is to um, keep fans uh, of mediocre teams involved with the game as long as possible. And that's what this model absolutely does, because you have teams that otherwise wouldn't be in the postseason there. You've got the White Sox. You've got the Reds. Um, you've got the Marlins. Uh, Cardinals wouldn't be in it. The, I, I mean, it, the list goes on. I, I don't even think the Yankees – no, the Yankees would have made it this year. But then you got the Astros. All, all of these teams that otherwise wouldn't have made it that are now there and um, all have a chance at the World Series championship. And I, I, I think that in the end, whoever wins it, 
absolutely wins it. We never look at the, um, uh, what do you call it, the March Madness tournament and look at the champion at the end of that and say, that team didn't deserve to win it. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think when the White Sox do win, we're all going to feel really good about that because that's who's going to win the championship, the World Series. I don't, I, your, your website's still actually not loading up for me, Ryan, Lovely. currently, but Cry about I, assume you chose, I assume you chose the White Sox. You had to. So uh, uh, if you want to jump right to the World Series, I'll tell you, I did actually choose the uh, White Sox over the Padres oh. in the World Series. Wow. Go ahead and give it wow. a shot. Go ahead and give it a shot again, though. <laughs> well, it's they're obviously the best team in baseball. I don't think there's any question. They're better than the Dodgers and the Yankees. I just think, you know, as a Chicago guy, I don't think there's any question that they're they're definitely better than the Cubs, if we can agree on that. I don't. I, I have a hard time saying that they're the best team in baseball. However, I look at that team and I I see a complete team. Uh, I think the Padres are also a complete team. If you look at that rotation one through five, and for the first time in a long time, uh, maybe the first time ever, a one through five is going to be very important in this postseason because typically you're looking at a four or even a three-man rotation in a postseason. But a one through five is going to be important. I look at the White Sox and I see a complete team. Their bats are phenomenal. Uh, I mean, Tim Anderson fell off a little bit, I guess, at the end. But when you're looking at a guy who missed nearly 20% of the games over the course of the season, and he still led the American League in runs, you look at Jose Abreu, who, I don't know if he, what, 33, 34 years old, had the best season of his career. Now, of course, you could say, oh, it was over 60 games, and what would he have done over the next 100? Whatever. We, we have to look at what we have. Jose Abreu is on fire, averaging RBI per game. Uh, and then you look at the, um, the bullpen. They have the best closer in baseball right now in Colome. Um And in, um, what is his name? Uh, gosh, Garrett uh, Kochart. I'm messing up his name. I feel badly. Um, That's okay. That's okay. But, we, know, we know they're so stacked, it's hard to remember everybody yeah. on the team. <laughs> but this, kid, this kid's pumping 102, never threw a minor league inning. He was the first pitcher to strike Crochet, out the first. Crochet. Crochet, excuse me. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Thank you. Mm-hmm. First pitcher to strike out the first two big league batters he faced without ever having or without having faced a minor league um, uh, batter since World War II. This is ridiculous what this kid mm-hmm. is doing. He's pumping 102. And then the rotation is ungodly. They've got probably, when you look at just the numbers and just the names, they might have top three in terms of their one, two, three with um, uh, Giolito, Keuchel, and then pick your poison from there, honestly, mm-hmm. because this, the rotation is, is uh, second to none, I, I would say, top to bottom. Although I would probably if – now, I took the White Sox over the Padres, I will say that. But if the um, White Sox and Padres were going to play a seven-game series right now, I would take the Padres over the White Sox. I think that the, um, the run of the getting through this first round, the second round, third round, and then finally the World Series is what's going to um, leave the White Sox standing over the Padres. I think that they just have the durability that the Padres may not have at this point. So it's interesting you brought up crochet. You know, baseball's changed so much. I mean, if this was 19, I mean, obviously we're quite a, quite a ways away from 1980, but you know, like you would have never brought up a kid to pitch when starting pitching was so, you know, much of a part of the game. Obviously, it's still a big part of the game, but we're much more reliever heavy than we've ever been, right? So it's interesting that you can just bring someone up like him and he can 
do well. Like Jordan Hicks a couple of years ago was the same way. You're like, why would we bring a kid up from a ball? But then when they throw a hundred plus miles per hour, it just seems like it can work. I mean, so you're chatting a little bit about on your other podcast about relievers versus starters. And you think starting pitching is actually going to be more important this postseason. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 so just to harp on that point that you were making there, the, the Major League Baseball has seen a paradigm shift in the importance of pitching in terms of what is more important, starting pitching or relief pitching. Uh, relief pitching is the single most important part of this game because those are the guys who are pitching in, at this point, the sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth inning. I use the Phillies as an example because, first of all, that's my team. Uh, second of all, they – are the prime example as to how important a bullpen is, right? They had a historically bad bullpen at a 7.03 earned run average. That is the second is worst bad? in history. Is that bad? Yeah. <laughs> second worst in history, in fact, only to the 1930 Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, again, keeping it in the family, I guess. Yeah, there you go. And um, you look at the rest of their team. Well, their rotation, they were 10th in terms of starting pitching uh, earned run average. Every single team, that was in the top 14 for starting pitching ERA made the postseason, except for the Phillies. And then you look, well, you're like, okay, well, 10th is really not that good. Well, that team was fifth in runs scored and they finished three games below 500, maybe even four. I'm, I'm That's going hard to do. Head. Yeah, it's, it's definitely difficult to do, but it, it really emphasizes how important a bullpen is. And they gave Girardi no weapons whatsoever uh, to the point that, he was bringing Wheeler out in that um, uh, in Wheeler's last start. He had 107 pitches, and he was like, no, "I got nothing, so go ahead and get back out there, uh, because you're the best what I've got uh, best uh, available in terms of what I've got right now." And um, at this point, though, this postseason, typically what we see is a shift even greater from starting pitching to relief pitching. Andrew Miller's that prime example that we often use. He, the Indians were bringing him in the second inning. They were bringing him in the ninth inning. It didn't matter, right? But here we have a situation where you're going to play potentially 12 games in 13 days. And if you're starting pitching, these guys who are getting uh, the ball on probably three, four, three, four days rest – aren't giving you innings, then your bullpen's going to wear down pretty damn quickly. And yep. uh, that's one of the reasons why I think the, um, the Reds are going to have a lot of success because, first of all, they have good starting pitching to begin with. But second of all, Bauer has been training himself to go on three days rest for a very long time. And they finally gave him the ball on three days rest, and the dude absolutely shoved. Eight innings, 12 strikeouts. I think he had one earned run. He became the first pitcher to have a dozen strikeouts on three days rest since Kurt Schilling in 2001. Now, Kurt Schilling did that on two days rest. However, in the game prior to that, he only pitched two innings because the uh, Diamondbacks famously had the lights. Um, I guess they went out or whatever. And um, the following day, July 19th, uh, 2001, Randy Johnson through seven innings, had 16 strikeouts, the most strikeouts by a relief pitcher in history. And then uh, uh, after a, another day rest, Kurt Schilling was back on the bump and struck out a dozen. Um, but, you know, it's, it's difficult to say. Well, do you count Kurt Schilling's um, uh, three days rest start? Well, he only threw two innings. Well, he also did it on two days rest, so that's pretty impressive as well. So I'm going to go ahead and say Bauer was the first since uh, Schilling. And then he was the first Red since uh, Jose Rijo in 1988. It's just really impressive what Bauer did. And um, 
I, I think he really put himself in a position to be somebody that the Reds are going to lean on this postseason until he breaks. And unfortunately, I just think when you're going three days rest in it, uh, day in and day out at this point, when you throw as maximum effort as he does, I mean, he's the dude's grunting every single pitch. It's, it's really fun to watch, but I, I think eventually you're probably going to break and you're probably going to have a bad outing. I, I, I don't wish, wish it on the guy, but I, I, I do think the Reds are going to make the NLCS. And uh, I think that that series is probably going to go pretty deep, but I think the Padres are going to uh, beat the Reds in the NLCS. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, and the thing with, to your point with, with Schilling, you know, even when you start a game and only go two innings, there's a lot of pregame prep, obviously. Like oh, you're yeah. throwing quite a bit. You have a long pregame bullpen. You go out there like two innings, for a starter is much different than two innings for a reliever. So, yeah, even if he yanked early, it's still kind of a full day. Obviously, two innings is not a full day. But, yeah, that makes sense. And it's funny you, you talk about Randy Johnson, who, you know, kid, like young kids today, like barely even know who he was. But – and then when you think about how effective Randy Johnson was, I mean, not effective, dominant he was, it just also lends some credence to, like, throwing this kid Garrett Crochet out there in the big leagues. Like – he throws 102 from the left side, kind of low arm slot, just like slinging it, right? So when you think about how terrifying Randy Johnson was, kind of explains how like this kid can just jump up there and do okay in the major leagues. Like just electric stuff and, you know, 100 miles per hour from the left side plays, whether you got the experience or not, it seems like. Bob, would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Um, sorry, I'm going to cut you off, but I, 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 I agree completely. So the thing is, not only that, and I think it was almost strategic what the White Sox did with him, is that they didn't even give, uh, not Crochet, they didn't give him a chance to face big league hitters, but they didn't give big league hitters a chance to face Crochet up until the very end. So it was almost brilliant what they did in saving his his arm for the postseason and to be honest uh, I'm kind of surprised that they just didn't um, shelf him until the postseason Uh, it it would have been incredibly impressive to see um, Crochet uh, debut in the postseason um, or even uh, later if they should they get through the first round and not need him uh, at that point Uh, I think we had what was it when the Royals were in the um, World Series. You had Adalberto or R- Raul Mondesi, whatever his name of the day is. And uh, he was he debuted in the uh, World Series, becoming the first player to debut during the World Series since I think it was like 1880 or something. And uh, back then the World Series wasn't even a real game. It was just like an exhibition thing. Might as well have been a spring training game. So yeah. uh, it just the fact that Crochet is where he's at and I feel awful for calling him I, I, I coach art, <laughs> but um, uh, the fact that he's where he's at at this stage is extremely impressive. And to be honest, I'm going to be extremely disappointed if he's not, um, not on that uh, team to start next season, if they just go ahead and shove in the minors, especially if he has uh, success here. Well, the, the thing you just don't want to send a guy back where he's not going to progress. Like some guys like Kevin Gossman, Jake Arrieta, guys with like incredible stuff it's almost like they're just going to go back and dominate the minor leagues so why bother sending them there like they just need to get their wings at the big league level and of course like trevor bauer is a guy like that too i'm personally not a a big fan of him but he just dominated the minor leagues to the point where it's like he just needs to get his reps here in the big leagues even if he struggles for a little bit he just still needs to get his reps in the big leagues so it seems like crochet is probably going to fit that bill where like what's the point of sending him back down to double a 
you know, he's already proved out, proven he can punch out big leaguers, even if he'll probably uh, for sure have some rocky points, you know, sooner than later. But, but yeah, it seems like he just got big league stuff and that's where he needs to be. I agree with you completely. And um, on a guy like Bauer and pitching in the minor leagues, and you brought up Arietta. Arietta, of course, struggled with the Orioles, and then he took off when he mm-hmm. um, hit the Cubs. I, I think that that's where big league coaching um, comes into play. Yeah. When you're uh, honest, when you're a young guy who has very little professional experience, and, and I'm here, I'm preaching to the choir with you guys. But when you're a young guy. Um, who has very little professional experience and you're on a big league roster, you need a pitching coach and a manager who can help you grow, not just maintain you, uh, not just maintain your skills. And uh, in Arietta's case, he didn't have that. He wasn't even able yeah. to throw his cutter, I believe. Um, and finally, Bobby, he got to the yeah, yeah. Bobby loves Bobby loves the Orioles and their development. Don't you, Bob? Well, he's not he's not the only one. Dylan Bundy was also had his cutter scrapped, which was arguably his best pitch. And now he's with the Angels and having a good year by all accounts. I mean, he always had a, a great arm, but we had Rick Peterson, if you remember Rick Peterson from the uh, Moneyball days. So he came in as like a – he came in – I forget what year when I was with the Orioles and totally outside-the-box pitching thoughts and – changing routines of guys and changing how they're changing their structure in spring training. And that was the year a lot of guys got hurt. Maybe it's to attribute to what he does. Maybe it's not, you know, coincidence, what have you, but the, the Orioles always, it, you know, guys like Jake Arrieta should be successful everywhere they go with the yeah. type of stuff he has. And the, the fact that he, they could not bring it out of them is, is damning, honestly, for the organization. Like you, you have this prize piece that you can't get, especially in his prime. I mean, he was technically in his prime his whole Orioles career. And then he went to the Cubs and it, on the tail end of his prime, obviously had the historic run. It's just, it's, it's damning for an organization that had so many young, talented pitchers uh, that have Including gone Kurt on Schilling. success. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kurt Schilling, Zach Britton, he was successful with the Orioles. Uh, Brian Mattis, who came up and just, yeah, was very, very good as a, as a rookie and then just fell off. I mean, you have guys that should have been established big leaguers for your organization for years that just ended up going either somewhere else to have success or they just petered out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, and it, it's really disappointing to see um, the way that – I mean, it's not just the Orioles. You see countless number of um, – of teams deal with the same thing. And then, I mean, you look at it like um, in Arietta's case, it's like the dude's like, uh, he's got so much juice and like, he's such a big league pitcher. It's such a stud. And it's a shame that you missed out on those prime seasons. It's like the Orioles had this, uh, you know, this ripe orange, right. And all they had to do was peel it. And they, instead they threw it away and the Cubs, go ahead and pick it up, they peel it, and then all of a sudden he's the, the best pitcher in baseball. And he was the best pitcher in baseball for an extended period of time. He had a, a stretch there of, I want to say, and I'm going off to some of these numbers, I, I go off the top of my head, so I may miss uh, to the left or the right by a game. But he had a stretch of, uh, I want to say it was 34 games where he had two no-hitters to just one game lost. Like That's how good of a talent that that man was. 
And now, of course, he's a, a shadow of his former self. And you, and you look at that prime that he had, and you're like, oh, it was such a small window. Was it a fluke? No, it wasn't a fluke. It was because the Orioles weren't getting out of him what he was capable at a, a younger age. The guy missed out on his prime seasons when he was 25, 26 uh, years old. And you look at that career that he's had, and it's it's been a stellar career. Of course, he wasn't what the Phillies had hoped, but you look at the career that he's had and realize that it probably should have started sooner than it did. And it just it didn't because their development stops in the minor leagues. You've got to have these these coaches who are capable of developing into the big leagues. Look at what the Astros do, for example. Yeah. Well, I'm, I guess the, the – what a pitcher's prime is it, i've heard that it's like 27 to 31 32 i mean ryan you probably honestly know better than i will. what what do you what do you think is the uh, the big league in your prime age group? I, I put no stock in, in any of that i think it varies no. from guy to guy none, none whatsoever I yeah. Um, I, I think some some guys you get this uh, proverbial flash in the pan who at 21, 22 years old are absolute studs and then all of a sudden nothing, right? And then you get guys who don't figure it out until they're 31 years old. Um, and then you get guys who are uh, – by all accounts, throwers early in their account and they can, or earlier in their career, and they can get yeah. guys out by throwing, and then they keep trying to do that, and they keep trying to do that, and then they fail, and they fall on their face, and then they realize they maybe they get a coach who finally can get through them and be like, dude, you can't do this anymore. You got to be a pitcher, and then they figure it out, and they are even better in the second half of their career than they were in the first half after they fell on their face for a season or two. Yeah. Well, and, and Arietta, it's it's interesting. I'm looking at his stats. So I'm pulled up right now, but you know, he was stellar from 28 through, you know, 31 with his incredible seasons being at 29 and 30. Um, but he is a guy where you could see big league coaches or just coaches in general wanted to change him. I mean, anytime you, as a pitcher, you have like this unorthodoxy in your motion and he steps way across his body. He's got some kind of like little hitchy things in there. Every pitcher, every every pitching coach, is like, oh, I, if we could just smooth him out, he'll throw 106 now. Like he'll, he'll have an even more turbo slider. It, it's just like at certain points you have to step back and say, well, maybe even though this is unorthodox, this is just how this dude's body moves, and we should kind of just like fine tune him, but mostly leave him alone. And it seemed like that's what the Cubs did. So I think a lot of times, and I, I think that this is something that's practiced by um, our driveline guys with uh, Kyle Body, for example, and I've talked to him about it a number of times, um, and it's specific to what you're talking about right there, is working with what you have instead of trying to change what you have. Um, like the, I cringed when you said smooth him out, right? What, what the hell does that mean? You, you have a guy who has a God-given talent, uh, an ability to work, and you want to change that, why would you not want to instead try to perfect that by working with what you have? And it seems like you've got two schools of thought, and you guys would know a hell of a lot better than I do, but you've got two schools of thought. You either got a coach who is going to say, okay, I have uh, you know, a prize piece here. Let me shine it. Or then you have the other coach who has, all right, I have a prize piece here. Let me paint it, right? And yeah. in the case of Arietta with the Orioles, he was painted. Well, when he went to the Cubs, he was shined. And that's what you saw in his Cy Young season. Yeah, I think it's a good analogy. I, I think part of the thing is, um, you know, and you're a little bit more in like, uh, I think you're a little bit in this, like the sports betting world. Like, obviously, you're always forecasting, you know, World Series picks, all this stuff. Forecasting anything is hard. 
and we're not very good at, at it as a species in general. And so when you look at a guy like Jake Arrieta and, and Bobby and I have a, a, a friend, a former teammate who name was Wynn Pelzer, he had a very short stride. And when super athletic dude at a university of South Carolina drafted by the, uh, the I think the Rockies and or no the Padres and the Orioles, but super short stride, like to the point where you're like, Oh, if we could just, if we could just lengthen out his stride and you know what, every, everyone tried to do that. And Wynn just naturally moved really, really well like through 95 back when 95 was re- when, you know, was really hard. Um, that's just the way he moved and everyone was trying to tinker with him everywhere he went. And it's just like, get off me like just let me be what i am but at the same time i think a lot of us as pitching coaches are like hey i'm just trying to look out for you five years from now or 10 years from now because you know jake arietta striding so far across his body that's something that probably for most pitchers is going to lead to extra stress on their body extra this extra that and maybe they break down where then 10 years you're like if only we had cleaned that up earlier it was pretty obvious, like, why didn't we do that? So I think that's where, you know, you kind of like second guess yourself and you want to, you're just trying to forecast and say, could we fix this now? And maybe they don't have problems in the future. So that's kind of like the devil's advocate side of it there. But I think you're right. At some point, you just need to look at people and say, this just seems like how this guy moves and we should probably leave it alone. Well, just the last thing that I'll add to that is I, I think that the best coaches uh, in the best systems are ones who look at pitchers as individuals versus, and, and this goes against the uh, the grain, I guess, because I, you know, being a numbers guy, I should look at this statistically, but I, I don't look at everything um, through the vein of numbers. And I, I think the best uh, systems are the ones who look at an individual versus saying, okay, pitchers most of the time. Well, let's look at Jake Arrieta, not pitchers most of the time. Let's look at him. Let's break him down biomechanically. Is this something that's feasible to continue going on? And in his case, was it, was it not? I don't know. I guess time will tell. He's kind of fallen off the Phillies. He doesn't have that same fastball anymore, but is that just age? You know, there's so many questions to to be asked, but I, I think that again, the, the best systems are going to look at individuals and um, train that individual versus training groups of um, groups of pitchers uh, as a whole. Yeah. And with Arietta, the other thing is he already was like, his output was already exceptional, right? So at TCU and then in the minors and in the big leagues, he was already throwing like 96 with crazy everything. So at that point you're like, well, maybe the way he moves, which is weird is good for him. You know, at that point, like he's, he's done everything. Whereas for me working with a young pitcher, if they stride way across their body and they kind of suck at pitching, it's like, maybe that's part of the reason that you suck. Right. (laughs) Whereas with Arietta, it's like, maybe that's the reason he's just good. Like he just, you know, he does that really well. I mean, Bobby, you've seen some amazing athletes. I mean, were there any other guys that stuck out like that for you who are just, this guy is so so good. He probably, it's probably not in spite of this, it's, or it probably is in spite of this instead of, or maybe it's in, because of this, not in spite of this. Yeah, I mean, the, like a guy that sticks out in the minor leagues, as a hitter anyways, was like Evan Gaddis. So mm-hmm. Evan Gaddis just, I mean, for anyone who doesn't know his backstory, go read it. It's He just out of baseball, comes back into baseball with the Braves, jumps into, I, I had played against him in high A and teammates with him in double A. And it's like, he just couldn't get the guy out. Uh, totally unorthodox, like no batting gloves, open stance, no undershirt. I mean, he's just like, 
just look like a bear who was given a log and told to hit this thing coming at him and he would hit it a mile. And it was, he, he basically made it, made it to the big leagues in like a year and a half. And if you were as a hitting, as a kid, yeah, as a hitting coach, I mean, he looked like Bam Bam from the Flintstones. <laughs> That's true. And as a hitting coach, you're probably watching thinking change everything. Like this guy could be really good, but he's already good. He's already a guy that dominates. He's already getting hits. And that's, you know, you have to balance that. I think as a, as a professional coach and as an organization, you've got to look at guys that are successful and you're either going to ride their wave of success or you're going to try and put a bump in the road to hopefully get more success later on. But at that point, it's my, at least in my opinion, he only knows one way and it's successful. Let yeah. him ride that out. I mean, guys are, you know, they, they always talk about like guys like DeGrom and Syndergaard that they're, they're going to blow out. Like their arms are going to blow out. They can't sustain this, you know, this velocity. But at this point, like they've gone this far. If yeah. you're going to tweak something, who's to say it's going to be better? Like there is nothing to say it's going to be better. It's your theory. You have a theory. Just let him ride it out. I mean, DeGrom, by all DeGrom's the best pitcher in Major League Baseball, I think, in my opinion. He's unbelievable. And, you know, Ryan, I'd like to hear some stats on DeGrom if you have any, but it just is, as a, as a guy who doesn't know pitching mechanics very well, you know, for someone to even want to tinker with what he does as a, as a big league pitcher, it seems absurd to me. I mean, do you have anything on DeGrom, Ryan, as yeah. far as stat-wise? I do, and let me pull it up now. But but just while I do, the last thing that I, w- I want to say is um, on t- on these guys who can be unorthodox, right? Uh, I look to a guy like Hunter Pence. Hunter Pence, thirty seven years old, just retired. He's as unorthodox as it gets, right? But yeah. the fact of the matter is, he got the ball, or excuse me, the bat to the ball as fast as just about anybody, right? It was unorthodox. It didn't look pretty, but that is a, a, a case where that man just he just hit. He just flat out raked, leave it be, right? It's yep. in the case, if that was a case where, okay, his swing was long and his bat was getting, um, wasn't getting to the, uh, his barrel wasn't getting to the zone quick enough, then yeah, that's maybe where you start refining. But his bat was as quick as possible. So why would you change that? Um, but just to get to, to your point on a DeGrom, absolutely. Uh, these are some numbers that I haven't updated in a, in a bit. So I'm going to give them to you in, uh, with the dates. I'm sorry I didn't have them prepped for you. But um, DeGrom with, uh, on August 31st, so excluding this month, he had um, since 2018, he had 51 total games where he had one earned run or more. In those games, he was 14 and 18 with a 2.81 ERA. <laughs> that is ridiculous. You're 14 and 18 in games with a 2.81 ERA because you allowed one earned run. That poor SOB gave up a single run, and he was like, I'm probably going to lose this game now. That is a <laughs> terrible, terrible psyche for a pitcher to have, and yet he overcame that so many times. That same date, I put out another uh, fact. In victories, 71 starts over his last three seasons, uh, excluding September, of course. Uh, in victories, 23 of them, 1.09 ERA. In the games he did not win, 48 of them, 2.51 ERA with an 0-18 record. It's ridiculous how good of a pitcher Jacob deGrom is. And I think what is understated with him is the fact that 
uh, and you guys would know a hell of a lot better than I do, but uh, I'm, I talk with uh, Lance McCullers Jr. all the time. You guys should have him on. Awesome, awesome dude. Mitch Harris. So oh, oh, I'm friendly with a lot of these pitchers who have had a lot of success. You guys are all freaking head cases, right? Mm-hmm. If <laughs> you're on the bump and you know that you lose most of the games that you give up one earned run and you give up a home run to the second batter of the game, that's got to mess with your head, man. And DeGrom somehow managed to over, manages to overcome that. You don't see him go out and give up two first inning uh, runs and then get shelled the rest of the game. The dude shuts it down. He's hands down one of the most impressive pitchers I've ever seen, if not for his ability to overcome those circumstances that the Mets have put him in where they're not scoring runs for him. He dominates whether or not that team is scoring, whether they give him 10 runs, which very rarely they do, whether or not they give him two runs or no runs. It doesn't matter. He is the best hands down. And um, the last no- the last number that I have on him, uh, and I, gosh, I, I don't want to mess this up, um, but if he had gotten at least – Hold on. I want to get this right. So I I don't want to uh, give you phony numbers here. But had he gotten – oh, man, I can't find it. So I'll give you um, an estimate. It was in his um, first Cy Young year. Had he gotten at at least three runs of support per game, he would have finished something like 27-1. and (laughs) That's unbelievable. It's insane. It's honestly – it's just an – is it's just Yikes. the it's just the Mets in a nutshell, right? Like the what could what could have been with that rotation they had a couple of years ago with uh Syndergaard DeGrom was a Wheeler, Mats. Uh I mean they just they had a bolt they had some bullpen arms. You, why? Why are they not better? I don't understand like I just is that an organizational thing? Dan, is that is that just the Mets? Like are they just the little brother of the Yankees and they just can't seem to get it right I mean I think cultural stuff can just sort of last somehow where guys expect to lose even at high levels it doesn't seem like it'd be like that because everyone in the big leagues is competitive if not for their team but for themselves like everyone wants to stay there right and and they don't want to get demoted I mean there's a, a fight no matter what it is but I don't know but they just seem to be perpetually bad and it's not just bad but it's just like there's something off there and it's hard to know what that is it's you feel it and i've played on losing teams almost my whole career so i kind of understand what that is it's hard to put your finger on it um but they have it (laughs) i don't know we're just you kind of you kind of just expect to lose you kind of expect to roll over you kind of mentally like ryan said let down when you lose the lead or give up something early you just kind of go to sleep and i think that can be just a flu that sticks with you as an organization but ryan to your point i think probably and this is probably part of why Degrom is so good the best pitchers they don't see the game as seven innings or nine innings they they do a really superb job of breaking it down not just in by inning not just hitter by hitter not just out by out but each individual pitch and so Degrom is probably just exceptional at saying I'm making this one pitch right now to the best of my ability. Then it's over with. Now, my only job is to make this one pitch to the best of my ability. He makes it. Now, my job is still to make this one pitch. And when you do that, suddenly 98 pitches have gone by and you've thrown a gem and you're like, oh, how'd I get here? And I know this because I struggle with this a lot as a starter in college and in early in, in pro ball. 
I was like, how my, my arm feels terrible. Like I'm struggling. How am I going to get through seven innings? Or you start to think about your ERA. You're like, I, you know, I don't want to get released. My ERA is at 4.5. If I give up X amount of runs today, I'm going to be at a five. And so then you're like, all right, I got to throw up five scoreless innings today. That feels really hard to do. A lot of it's out of your control. But then when you start saying, okay, all I got to do is make one good pitch, then everything just gets so much easier. But it's just really hard to do that. It's really hard to, to do that. And I would just imagine that he's exceptional at tuning all the other stuff out and just he's a one-pitch pitcher for 100 pitches every game. And he's just exceptional blocking it out. That's my guess with him. I got nothing to add. I think you put it perfectly. Yeah. I, I think that's exactly what he is. Yeah. Well, and it's it's hard. So so my best season of my career, you know, actually in Camden, New Jersey. Well, so I'm sure you're familiar with that ballpark. Oh, um, yeah. I uh, we were a bad team, and I was the setup man. So I pitched every time with a one run lead, or it was a tie game, and I was pitching the ninth. So there was a lot of pressure and you knew if you didn't, if you gave a run, you basically get a loss. So at the end of the year, my, I had a 1.8 ERA and a one and five record. Cause like the five times I gave up a run, I got a loss. But at the same time, that was the best I'd ever pitched. That was the peak of my career because I was really comfortable being a reliever for the first time. My stuff was good. I trusted it. I came in there and was just very mentally focused on just making pitches. And I only had to do it for one inning. So I just had to make a pitch, make a pitch, make a pitch, and the score be damned, you know, and all that other stuff be damned, and I just made a pitch. And for me, that was that was really easy. That was easier to do at one inning spurts. It was really hard for me to do mentally for seven innings at a time. So, and I think that's just coming down to some guys are mentally tougher than others and better at blocking stuff out. Some guys are just way better as, as starters. Like to to block that out for seven straight innings or nine straight innings is tough, but some guys can do it really well for one inning. So I, I know what it's like to be on a, a bad team like that. People were like, how are you one in five? I'm like, you have five runs. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Sue me. But, and hitting's the same way. I mean, Bobby, it's so tough, I'm sure, to, and, and that's why I think just being in the big leagues is so hard. And, it's, and it really is weird when you look at Jake Arrieta, where you're like, what, what fell off for him? Like, how did, he, how did he go from 177 to 310? Then how did he go from 310 to 464 three years later? I mean, Ryan, do you see anything, like, glaring with him? I mean, it, a confluence of factors, I'd guess, but what do you see? Biggest thing I saw with him was just the velocity fall off, but I, 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 don't, I don't know. I, I truly, I, I wish I had the answers for you, but um, uh, once, sometimes once the velocity goes and guys, you know, all of a sudden your off-speed stuff doesn't fold them quite as much or your, um, your breaking stuff or your cutting stuff doesn't quite uh, fold them quite as much. When you, when you give guys a, a millisecond more, I, I don't have to tell you, but you, you, these guys use it. And it there's an old saying that, um, what is it, that a, hitting a baseball is actually impossible to do. It's impossible to see ball, hit ball, right? Mm -hmm. It's all predictive analysis that your brain conducts as the ball's coming at you. You see the, you see the ball being released and your, your brain, your body is guessing where it's going to be. It's, right. <laughs> and some guys just have the ability to do that. Me personally, I didn't, especially when it was over like 85. <laughs> mm -hmm. But uh, it, it's, it's just predictive analysis that you're, you're um, conducting. And when you're allowing somebody uh, additional time to conduct that predictive analysis by throwing two, three, four miles an hour uh, softer, I suppose, 
And I think that that's where you start to th- see things falling off. Now you look at cases where guys, uh, Hendricks, for example, with the Cubs, who's had a lot of success without the velocity. Well, it's because nobody knows where the hell his pitches are moving, mm-hmm. right? And you can't conduct that, you know, that quote unquote predictive analysis as a pitch coming at you. And that's how he's getting swings and misses or bad yeah. contact. Yeah. And it seems like you just have to, not every pitcher can make that adjustment. And to your point, like, so my last season, I got, I got hit really, really hard and I was a little bit hurt just enough where I could still pitch, but not enough where I had the same velocity. I was down like probably two miles per hour. And I think my spin rate was down personally. And the issue with that is by time you realize you're different, like as a pitcher, you're saying, all right, even if I get shelled today, I'm not going to like throw my hands up and change everything for tomorrow. Like even in Jake area's you know, amazing season, he had some bad starts you have a bad start, you don't just change everything for the next one. You say, okay, it's a fluke. You know, I'm going to stick to my routine and do it again next time. But once you string three or four of those that are bad together, sometimes there might be something actually wrong and you might actually need a change. And now maybe, you know, you have a down season. It's hard to know like, okay, my stuff was down this year a little bit. Do I need a change now? Do I need a change now? Do I need a change now? And it's almost like you put the frog in the cold water pot, right? You slowly turn up the heat and he boils before he realizes it. But if you throw the frog in the pot when it's hot, he hops right back out. So I think for a lot of these pitchers is they lose a mile per hour this year and then a mile per hour next year. And then they don't realize that they actually have to change the way they pitch because they're no longer a flamethrower because they, the difference between flamethrower and average thrower was such a slow degradation. And so maybe it's just guys like Kyle Hendricks figure that out fast or they're like, I need to change now. I can see my future. I need to completely change the way I pitch. I need to pitch backwards more. I need to throw more breaking balls. I need to throw more two one changeups. Whereas the other guys who are power pitchers, maybe they just they don't see the impetus to change that fast. And I know for me that was the the case my last season. I was like, I'm I just had a bad outing. I just had a bad outing. And then like seven bad outings later, you're like, I'm probably gonna get released now. Maybe I need to change now, but it's too late and your and your ship is too full of water. Well, then you also, uh, to, and this is to Bob's point, but you also then have these freaks, right, who, like DeGrom, who he just ended a season where he had his hardest fastball ever. And that's like, the f- I think, the fourth or fifth season in a row where his vo- uh, velocity increased. And this season he was over 97 on his average fastball. Now, of course, people are like, oh, he only threw 12 starts or whatever the hell he ended up throwing. But – I don't care. I'm impressed. That is ridiculous that this guy yeah. at this stage in his career, 31 years old, now he doesn't have the big league innings that a lot of 31 year olds have. And that's to his benefit perhaps in the future. But at this stage in his game, he's still throwing the ball harder. He's figuring out a way to do it to a way to get stronger. And I think that that <clears throat> lends itself to the importance of um, conditioning off the field. Um, I think that we'll just, I think it's kind of been done away with, but when I was playing ball, for example, like 10 years ago to 15 years ago, pitchers uh, with the idea that, Oh, I can't lift weights. Right. Well, get the hell out of here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, well Ryan, course, I know we want to wrap up here pretty quick, but I wanted to jump in real quick to just where, where you see some of these young guys, you know, baseball's full of, you know, we were talking off air, Tim Anderson, um, Obviously, Mike Trout has been the forefront of, like, young players just dominating. Fernando Tatis Jr. Who do you see out of these guys being on a Hall of Fame-type pace stat-wise? Or any, is anybody sticking out to you other than maybe Trout, who's 
notably has all the accolades already? So I wish I had a, an answer for you in terms of players, but I think we are going to see a complete overhaul as to, as to what the requirement for the Hall of Fame is. Um, I, I have been an advocate, I guess, against the current voting form. One of the things that I do on my website is uh, every single year when it's Hall of Fame vote time, I poll former players, uh, former big league players who I believe as alumni should have a Hall of Fame vote. And I, I would love to take credit for the idea, but the idea was from Kevin Euclid, who, um, you know, of course, was a Red Sox great, wasn't a Hall of Famer, um, didn't get any Hall of Fame votes, in fact. But uh, he was a great ball player. And now what he does is he owns his own uh, brewery, um, a brew pub and everything. Yeah, Loma yep. Brew. And um, when I spoke to him, he was like, you know, it's kind of I, I get invited back for the Red Sox anniversary teams and everything. But I've kind of been cast away by baseball. And uh, I think a lot of these guys feel that way. These guys who were an all star maybe two, three times and. Uh, they gave a lot to baseball. They gave their bodies, their lives to baseball. And um, they made enough where they can pursue a, a different living, uh, a different passion in his case. And then baseball says, okay, you know, thank you. That's not too unlike what the military does. You know, thank you for your service. And uh, we'll see you on the flip side. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> and in his case, um, I think that's somebody who, you know, he has a lot to think about when it comes and a lot to offer when it comes to baseball and to who belongs into the Baseball Hall of Fame. And um, I think that that is something that baseball should consider. Uh, I know it's out of baseball's hands. It's in the Hall of Fame's hands. But what the hell makes a, a guy because he has a, a Bachelor of Arts in Journalism and spent 10 years covering baseball from high school baseball through college through what makes that guy? the expert, right? What I personally, I applied for BBWAA because I want to have a vote. I've convinced a number of guys to vote for who I think should be voted for or whatever. And this is a whole another thing. You guys will have to have me back for part two because I, mm -hmm. I love talking baseball with you guys. And we didn't even get into most of the stuff that we were supposed to talk about. But <laughs> We got where we went, yeah. Yeah, but the um, the I applied and they were like, um, I got denied. And I was like, uh, okay, why? Well, well because baseball is not your main source of income. Oh, okay. That's the requirement to have a vote wow. for the Hall of Fame. That is stupid. It has nothing to do with um, an expertise on the game, right? Mm -hmm. But that, that's where you want to hang your hat. That's, that's who deserves to have a Hall of Fame or a Hall of Fame vote. The, the most uh, prestigious Hall of Fame in, in the world, in my opinion. But you're saying that the requirement is that you have a BA in journalism that you covered baseball yeah. from various points for 10, uh, for 10 years. And then um, baseball is your main source of income. Uh, okay. That's really dumb in my opinion, and it needs to change. And baseball players, uh, alumni, Kevin Euclid, for example, Brett Boone, these guys who I talk to on a regular basis, the guys who are alive, fortunately, and uh, in the hall of fame deserve to have a say as to who goes into their Hall of Fame. Now, to, just to get back to your original point as to who I think is going to end up in the Hall of Fame, again, I think the uh, paradigm is going to shift in terms of what the requirements are. I don't think we're going to see a 300 pitcher, a 300 win pitcher again, which was the requirement no. for a long time. We're, we're going to see few and far between guys getting 3,000 hits with the uh, importance of, um, of a walk, right? But I think there are a number of guys playing right now who will eventually make the Hall of Fame. And I think um, one thing that's going to be very interesting in the future is to see 
how their Hall of Fame numbers are impacted by this season. The fact that they missed 100 games. In 100 games, you know, you look over the course of a career, you say, ah, well, you know, it's not that much, right? Well, over the course of 2,000 games, that's 5% of a guy's career. That's 10% yeah. of a guy's career over the course of, um, of, of 1,000 games. So, yeah, it's, it's going to play a major impact. And look at a guy recently in Harold Baines who got into the Hall of Fame because he missed major accolades, which I don't put any stock into anyway. It's uh, 3,000 to me is just as arbitrary as 2,999. It's yeah. just a more aesthetically pleasing number, right? But he got into the Hall of Fame because he missed those accolades because of the strike in 1981 and the strike in 1994 and 1995. Without that, he would have had 3,000 hits. He would have had, uh, I believe it was uh, 400 home runs, maybe 300. I can't remember where he ended up on 99 there. And then over 500 doubles. But didn't get there. Fortunately, Tony La Russa advocated for him. I personally would not have voted for Harold Baines, but I never would tear down a guy's plaque. He belongs there. I don't. So mm-hmm. who, who the hell am I to say? But, yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, 100 games for Mike Trout could be the difference between 480 home runs and 500. Like, oh, dude, cer- cer- certainly could. It could be, it could be the difference. <laughs> yeah, it could right, be the difference right, between right. him being arguably the greatest player statistically of all time. Yeah, well, here's, a, here's, a, here's a forecast that I want to hear, Ryan. What age does Mike Trout retire? Because the dude looks like he's just built like a brick, whatever. I mean, does he make it to 42? What, oh, what, what age does he retire? I can't project that. I have no idea. I he just no looks clue. durable, like just durable. I mean, well, he's, here's, he's built so like a bulldog. I'll add, to, I'll, before you go, like with Mike Trout, I feel like to Dan's point earlier, his game has changed a little bit. Going, like he was a speed guy coming up. Like he was fast. He stole forty some bases. Now he always had pop, but now he's. I mean, he's become a true the the most prolific power hitter in baseball. Essentially, like he he is a home run. He leads the league in home runs. You know, he is he's toned down his stolen bases. Is he's kind of started to. I don't want to say paced himself for the long haul, but he has changed a little bit over over his career, uh, at least to this point. He's only 28, 29 years old. But he was definitely more of a speed guy, more of a, I guess, guns blaze in every game. You know, he always hustles down the first base and he plays the game the right way, what most consider the right way. But he's definitely taken a little bit of a shift to more of a, uh, I don't want to say a, a less effort approach, but he's more of a power guy, less of a speed guy now, which might play into his longevity you know, the wear and tear on his body. Yeah. Well, he had his 300, 300th home run this year. So he's at 302. And you guys are right. I mean, he will probably get to at least 600. And he probably missed out on 35 home runs this year at his pace. So, yeah, it's a big chunk of, chunk of change. Um, but, Ryan, uh, we know we got to be sensitive to your time. But where, where can people follow up with you? This is a great talk. We'll definitely have to have you back on. But where can people continue to follow you and, uh, you know, what are you putting out there on the web right now? Everything for me is just the ace of spades. Eh, I can't even say my own damn name. The ace of spader, S-P-A-E-D-E-R. Everything you can find at my website, my Twitter, all that stuff. And I, again, I don't really do this stuff for plugs. I just like talking baseball, good baseball people. So please have me back. We'll do uh, part two and uh, cover some of the stuff that we missed because we kind of went off on tangent there. But again, like I said, I, 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 knew yeah. this, I knew this would happen because as I often say, you know, I'm a ball player. I just suck, right? I'm not, I'm not a media guy like you know some of those other guys. Some of them are really good dudes, but I just 
not the biggest fan of that uh, that uh, boys club, if you will. I'd I'd rather hang out with you guys. <laughs> well, I appreciate. It. Yeah, it was a great great talk. We appreciate you having having you on, and uh, yeah, we'll definitely do this again, maybe in the uh, in the playoffs if you're not too packed, and we can see how many of your projections came true, or if you're in despair at that point. All right. Thanks. Uh, thanks a lot, gentlemen. You guys have a great day. All right. Take care, Ryan. And for everyone else out there, thank you for joining us on the morning brushback. We will be back shortly. Bob, are we having a Friday show this week? We are going to try. If we don't, we move to once a week starting next week where we'll have guys as interesting as Ryan on once a week. And we'll be live chatting while you guys are watching uh, the feed that Dan puts out because Dan is the tech guy. Guys and and gals, we're gonna have some female gals guests too. as well as well. Yeah, so I think we're probably gonna um, we will let you know if you're not on my email list. I would say definitely sign up. Obviously, follow Twitter. We'll put out any um, any updates to the show's format as we go on there. But to keep up to date, definitely uh, danblue.com. You can click to get on my newsletter in the upper right hand corner. Also, put links in the show notes here today. So. Uh, appreciate you guys being here with us. Um, yeah, really good talk with Ryan Spader. He's a he's super knowledgeable. Seems like he's a really deep and, and wide knowledge of, of stats and the game and all that stuff. He is got a lot of good info. I mean, just scrolling through his website a little bit, even while I was talking, it's it was there's so much here. He dives into so much. He also has something uh, called the Semper Fi Fund because he is a uh, Former Marine. Former Marine. So he's he does he does some cool things with some baseball, some current and former players, Semper Fi Fund uh, fundraiser for um, to support post nine eleven combat wounded, critically ill, catastrophically injured members of uh, of the armed forces. So he's got a lot of good stuff. Definitely check it out. The Ace of um, Check him out on Twitter. I'll post it in the show notes when we post the when we post the show on on the website all right well thanks again for being here be sure to subscribe leave us a review we would appreciate it episode 61 we've made it it's such a big milestone for us 61 bob what a, like what roger a maris this is our yeah. roger maris that pushing forward towards 100 now so all right we'll see you here next week for next episode oh,